Amazon Web Services changed how software engineers work. Before AWS, it was common for startups to purchase their own physical servers. AWS made server resources as accessible as an API request, and AWS has gone on to create higher-level abstractions for building applications. For the first few years of AWS, the abstractions were familiar. S3 provided distributed, reliable object storage. Elastic MapReduce provided a managed cloud Hadoop system. Kinesis provided a scalable queuing system. Amazon was providing developers with managed alternatives to complicated open source software. More recently, AWS has started to release products that are completely novel. They're unlike anything else. A perfect example is AWS Lambda, the first function-as-a-service platform. Other newer AWS products include GroundStation, which is a service for processing satellite data, and AWS DeepRacer, a miniature race car for developers to build and test machine learning algorithms on. As AWS has grown into new categories, the blog announcements for new services and features have started coming so frequently that it is hard to keep track of it all. Corey Quinn is the author of Last Week in AWS, a popular newsletter about what is changing across Amazon Web Services. Corey joins the show today to give his perspective on the growing, shifting behemoth that is Amazon Web Services, as well as the other major cloud providers that have risen to prominence. Corey is the host of the Screaming in the Cloud podcast, which you should check out if you like this episode. I should also mention that we have our own newsletter. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash newsletter to check it out and sign up. And we also are looking for sponsors for Q1. If you're interested in reaching over 50,000 developers, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor. Corey Quinn, you are the author of the Last Week in AWS newsletter. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. When did you first start working with Amazon Web Services? Great question. There's a little bit of revisionist history that goes into it. I started back in 2008, give or take, of, oh, what is this thing? You mean the online bookstore? I'll start clicking around in the console or what passed for the console at the time. And it turned out it was super complicated and hard. And I very quickly started looking at things like RightScale to make sense of it. I've sort of dabbled with it ever since through a variety of jobs, consulting engagements. But I didn't get really focused on AWS until a bit over two years ago as a primary area of interest. You've been in software for a while. How would you describe the world of software before and after AWS? That is a terrific question. I'd say beforehand, it wound up having a much higher barrier to entry. You had to deal with a bunch of different VPS providers, all of them terrible in various ways, or you'd have to wind up building out your own data center, having spent entirely too many years doing exactly that, it focuses doing all of the wrong behaviors. In your background, you were you like a, a person that was in a data center or were you just working with engineers that were in a data center? Give me a little bit of background on what you've been doing engineering-wise, IT-wise in the past. Sure. 
I started my career as a grumpy Unix systems administrator, which you can also state as Unix administrator. And from there, it turned into a an awareness of what the rest of the world was doing. It was pretty clear that my initial area of emphasis, which was large-scale email systems, was not the wave of the future unless I wanted to work for one of maybe four companies. So I started pivoting. I focused increasingly on automation and data centers using things like Puppet. I was one of the early developers behind SaltStack, which really... It should not be as much of a condemnation as it probably is if you've ever seen my code. I love the technology. My code is terrible, but at the time, there was no one else to do some of the things that needed to get done. And there was another shift where configuration management was no longer the way of the future. Immutable infrastructure as a concept started rising very rapidly. So if not getting environments to correct for drift, if if that was not going to be what I focused on next, what was? And it seemed to me that when I left my last job and was trying to figure out what's next, becoming a consultant focused around a very specific problem was the right answer. Specifically, the AWS bill was too high. What problems I ran into early was that Amazon releases an awful lot of stuff constantly. All of them affect the economics of what you're doing in your environment. So how do you wind up getting from understanding what's important and what moves that without getting lost in the minutiae? So I started collecting a list of everything that happened every week to keep myself up to speed. And it didn't take much for me to realize that maybe I wasn't the only person who would benefit from this. I put together a few drafts of a newsletter, told people I would be starting to send it out in a couple of weeks. I figured I'd get a couple people who signed up. Charity Majors tweeted about it, and the first issue went to exactly 550 people. Okay, I guess I'm doing this for a while. And that was, at the time of this recording, almost 90 weeks ago. So your newsletter is last week in AWS. Explain the goals of your newsletter. Sure. It has a few different goals depending upon who you are. For me, it forces me to keep up with what's going on and not drift and ignore it. It also winds up gathering all of the news from Amazon's cloud ecosystem, both the announcements that they release internally, as well as what people are doing in the community. The problem is, is because they're a giant multinational company, they're not allowed to have a sense of humor of which they are themselves aware. My first language is sarcasm and snark. So I make fun of the announcements that come out, and I include, in a way that is hopefully not punching down, not calling out individual people, that focuses on snark and sarcasm and being uplifting rather than putting everything down and crapping on it all of the time. And... That sort of keeps me engaged because otherwise I'm more or less gathering a bunch of press releases and midway through the second issue, I would fall asleep and give up and go do something fun. So it keeps me engaged. It lets me express creativity and it forces me to keep up with a very rapidly evolving ecosystem. As an added bonus, early on in the process, I received an email from someone. I think the first sponsor was Datadog asking, we love what you're doing. Can we give you money to mention our product in it? To which my response was, can you give me money? Well, of course you can give me money. How much money are we talking about? And it very rapidly emerged that I had built a strange revenue model. I expected this to be a labor of love, but it's turned into something that's non-trivially, that's throwing off non-trivial amounts of revenue. So that became something I didn't expect. Well, not only that, the advantage of doing developer-focused media is you build a really strong familiarity with what is going on in technology. So in some sense, 
you cap your downside risk because even if this whole newsletter thing doesn't work out, well, you've built a really good understanding of what's going on in AWS. Exactly. And if we want to take a slightly more cynical approach, again, my entire business is built around fixing AWS bills for large environments. That's lucrative, but it's also not something I can necessarily see myself doing for the next 50 years. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I know I don't hold still very well, but whatever I wind up doing in five years, I'm going to need a base of people to tell about it. So the time to build an audience from that perspective is now. Indeed. Well, let's get into a discussion of AWS. Describe your mental model of Amazon Web Services. I view a company that operates in such a way that compared to any other company on the planet, is it may as well be an alien organism. They're effectively microservices driven, which means they have very small teams, each working on individual projects. Anytime they wind up having to work on something that works cross-functionally across all of the service teams, it turns into, well, I don't want to use the word disaster, so pretend I didn't. You see that manifest in things like the console, the bill, CloudWatch, which has to aggregate metrics across everything. But the individual services that launch as developed by small teams is fascinating. They have a product strategy of yes, which also means that they're at some point going to wind up competing with basically everyone. And that does give some people pause. But today, if I take a look at the entire cloud ecosystem, they are, for most use cases, the vendor it makes the most sense to work with. I'm not a partisan as far as these things go. The reason I focus on AWS bills is because that's where the customers are. If people were instead all on Azure, we'd be having a very different conversation. I don't know if I'd be writing last week in Azure or not, but I think that there would be a need for something like that in that ecosystem. Do you think of AWS as a set of products specifically for engineers, or do you think there are aims to move up the stack into, I don't know, design tools or things for... I don't know, sending emails or things like that. They've already got that to an extent. As of the time of this recording, they just released a whole email deliverability dashboard for Pinpoint, which is itself a service built on top of SES. With over 150 services now, even Amazon employees aren't always sure whether I'm talking about a service that exists or something I made up just to mess with them. At reInvent this year, they announced AWS Ground Station, which provides telemetry services for satellites passing overhead. And even after mentioning that in a couple of talks in the Q&A section, I've gotten, yeah, follow up. Are you making that up just to mess with us? No, it's real. It's called Ground Station. Here's what it does. Cool. Follow up. No, seriously, are you messing with us? So if you're asking me, is there anything that I would say definitively that AWS would never move into as a market? Really, the only one I can think of is my own. I can't see AWS self-mockery launching anytime soon. <laughs> so AWS is this sprawling set of services. What's your sense of how the engineering org is laid out to foster that kind of sprawl or to sustain that kind of sprawl? From conversations with people who've worked in that environment, some of whom were extreme champions of Amazon, others of whom would not cease the profanity, they it seems to me that the 
if a feeling I guess is closest to a bunch of internal startups that are competing for funding for mindshare, and they go through iterative rounds until something winds up getting released. At the end of an entire laborious process of iteration going through series of fundings, their quote unquote exit is when someone at AWS gives the service a stupid name and launches it to the public. And that means that a few different things emerge. A lot of things get built that never see the light of day. And occasionally you'll see services launch that appear to directly compete with one another. And that becomes in some ways a fascinating story. I was doing a lot of coverage of the container orchestration system wars. There was this period of time where Docker had reached market acceptance and people were looking for what is the best solution for managing all of my Docker containers. Is it going to be Mesosphere? Is it going to be Docker Swarm? Is it going to be HashiCorp Nomad? And then eventually Kubernetes came out and it it reached enough saturation or market share or was marketed well enough that people said, okay, this is what we're settling on. And AWS hadn't placed a strong bet on any of the particular orchestrators. They had placed a bet on their own proprietary orchestrator, the ECS one. And then when Kubernetes got accepted, there was a sense that it it impacted the strategy of AWS. How did Kubernetes impact the strategy of AWS? From my mind, I think you you nailed it in that there were a lot of different competing standards, more or less. And when Kubernetes emerged as a more or less de facto standard across the board, it feels, and again, I have no inside information on this, that it sort of caught AWS flat-footed. They wound up releasing EKS, or the AWS Elastic Container Service for Kubernetes. Apparently, they get paid by the syllable for that one. And it was very much a 1.0 product when it launched. It took over 15 minutes to provision a cluster. It was not at all clear what permissions it needed, so you needed to grant it roles that were incredibly broadly scoped. It didn't wind up doing logging appropriately. The horizontal pod autoscaler didn't get released until well after initial launch. And the initial guidance around that was, well, it's it's not the first to market. It's not the best of breed. I'm not entirely sure why I would use this today. That said, it has, in typical Amazon fashion, improved rapidly since the time of launch to the point where now, looking at it, it's not at all a bad option. That said, I think the larger ecosystem story here is that Kubernetes and or how we orchestrate containers is not going to be an area of focus for too terribly long. I mean, when's the last time you had a deep dive discussion with someone about which Linux distribution they should use? It becomes plumbing. It starts slipping below the surface and stops mattering to most people. I think that container orchestration is absolutely going to follow suit. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is, you know, what has gone from the serverless idea, the Lambda AWS Lambda has gone from a fringe kind of cool idea to looking like that's going to be the modality that people are building their applications in from day one more and more going forward. Although it's hard to to see exactly what the serverless stack will look like because today, you you know, I guess the the most serverless stack that you can build would be something where you're using a bunch of managed services like queuing and database, some kind of database system, and then you glue together 
these big managed services with glue code that runs in AWS Lambda, but that could certainly change. You could certainly have further developments of things on top of Lambda. What's your sense of the adoption of serverless? I think that serverless is one of those interesting technologies that at when it launched, it started to look like an, an awful lot like a toy, where it's the sort of thing that you see that more or less manifests itself in a way that, okay, this is neat for this one use case, but never for my use case. It only supports some certain languages, and it only winds up working for five minutes. And as capabilities continue to expand and it starts to move up the stack, it begins to be something that... That starts to look a lot more realistic. The, I think, hidden secret behind serverless that powers it is the event model, where an event happens in your environment and it automatically invokes a reaction to it that is highly parallelizable, and it almost completely removes the need for a company to look at infrastructure. It's also priced incredibly competitively to the point where there is virtually no company on the planet that is spending a huge amount of money on Lambda. So it it winds up shifting the attention in a few different ways. The problem is, is that as we look at serverless, that term has come to mean a lot of things to a lot of people, and it's not helped by people chiming in uselessly to proclaim serverless still runs on servers, as if it were this revelation that had not occurred to anyone until the person chimed in. And great. Terrific. Thank you. Do you have anything else to add other than the same hackneyed comment that everyone makes all the time? <laughs> That's not helpful and you're not advancing the discourse in any meaningful way although there are fair criticisms of lambda it doesn't do everything these days oh i have a list oh tell me your list what are the shortcomings of using lambda these days the initial problem of course is shifting the way you think about software into this new paradigm. If you have a 20-year-old monolithic application that has been doing something of business value, for example, running the ATM networks, or this is what makes sure the traffic lights don't all turn green at the same time, then shifting that to Lambda is likely not going to be beneficial in any strategic sense. Whereas if you're looking at this from the perspective of we're building something greenfield and this is the way we think about things, maybe that winds up adding significantly more value. The biggest danger from my perspective is people who see this new tool and see it strictly as a set of checkbox capabilities, but don't shift the way they envision architecture, where they still try and shove an entire monolith into a Lambda function, where they wind up trying to store state inside of Lambda. You can build an awful lot of terrible things with terrible anti-patterns using something like this technology. But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily how you should be doing a thing. I mean, I gave a talk about called Terrible Ideas in Lambdas, so Terrible Ideas in Serverless, Silence of the Lambdas, <laughs> which showed exactly how not to do these things. And like anti-patterns, for example, it turns out most databases fall over and catch fire when you have 10,000 Lambda functions concurrently trying to talk to it at the same time. And when you have a whole bunch of Lambda functions scanning the entire internet to find open Elasticsearch clusters, it turns out Amazon would like a word because their premier serverless platform isn't something they like you using to attack the larger internet. So <laughs> there are ways of doing things well and there are ways of doing things terribly just as with any tool. No tool survives first contact with other people's terrible architecture ideas. They also, AWS uses the term serverless in the context of managed databases sometimes these days. So there is a serverless Aurora, and 
I haven't really delved into what that means. Aurora is, I think, their their Postgres or their managed relational database service, but I don't know why they use the term serverless because, like, S3 is is in a sense serverless, or DynamoDB is in a sense serverless. What's different about serverless Aurora? Terrific. I, I would consider S3 serverless, and they might have even called it that when it launched 10 years ago, if they'd thought of it in advance. So you would have uh, serverless simple storage service, so it would then be S4. S4. There you go. Exactly. The... I think there are a few things that define something as serverless. One of them is, sure, while you pay for data that lives in the system, it scales down to zero. So you, when it's under load and processing work, it costs you money. When it's not, it doesn't. And, and that seems to be one of the key distinctions. Historically, Dynamo was the subject of some debate because you could only scale it down to one read and write capacity unit. So it was still costing you a few bucks a month. Not that that's massive, but when you have 1,500 of them sitting in various dev environments, it starts to add up. So the ability for it to scale down to nothing other than what data you're storing in that and then on demand spin up and begin processing things from a compute perspective seems to be a fundamental tenet of serverless these days. And they released, for example, DynamoDB on-demand capacity at reInvent recently and specifically nailed that objection right there. Whether or not something is serverless or not is, again, something that I leave more for the philosophers and people arguing on the internet while the rest of us go about our jobs. But I do get the sense that with serverless Aurora, which now I believe has announced both MySQL and Postgres flavors, where you have this thing that lives there, it's a relational database, you don't need to think in a MySQL context, but now whenever your application gets traffic, it can talk to a database as it would traditionally, but then that database turns off when you're done. You're not getting billed for it, it doesn't need to sit around doing nothing, and given some of the new data models, it also starts to support much better concurrency. So you avoid the 10,000 lambdas all talking to your MySQL instance at once problem. Well, if that's the promise of serverless, then I really like where this is going because I don't know about you, but I have a bunch of applications that I've, like stupid experiments that I've run, but I refuse to turn them off because someday I'm going to come back to them and do something with them. And they're costing me $25 or $12 a month. And I just, you know, whenever I look in QuickBooks or or my bank statement, it's like, oh, $12 here, $25 there. And it starts to add up. And, you know, hearing you talk, it makes me think like, this is going to be a relic of the past. Eventually, these things are just going to shut down while they're not being used. It doesn't make sense to have a cloud infrastructure system that just like stays up all the time while it's not being used. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I played with AWS once. That's why I pay Amazon 22 cents a month and will until the earth crashes into the sun. Yeah, exactly. So there are these companies that have huge amounts of infrastructure running on AWS. I'm sure you've met many of them. What kinds of challenges does a company run into once they have a really large AWS deployment? Visibility, first and foremost. For example, my bill last month was $16 on AWS. The month before that, because I did a demo for someone and then left some things running inadvertently, it was 50 bucks. So when your bill more than doubles, you notice that. When you're at significant scale and you're spending, I don't know, $120 million a year on AWS, it 
turns out that even big mistakes are easy to lose in the noise. And you do some digging around and you realize that you're, someone on your data science team wound up copying an extra few petabytes into S3 and left it there after they left your company three years ago. And you start to see things like that start to accumulate, waste and cruft. It, it all comes down to a certain lack of visibility and control. Large companies are generally used to the historical data center model, where you would wind up building things on a capital expense basis, you would plan out your data center build-outs, and it's super hard for a single engineer to accidentally order $6 million worth of hardware without getting fired or arrested. The new model, though, is that someone can inadvertently spin up that level of resource and not only not be aware of it, but no one is aware of that for, in some cases, years at a time. It is not at all transparent what's happening in your environment. I keep going back to the bill, not just because that is what I do for a living, but it's also the only place in your entire AWS account where you can see on one screen all of the resources you have running across all of the regions in your account or linked accounts. There's no inventory service. It's just the bill. What are some other ways that teams that are running on AWS end up overspending? A great example of this is, if you take a look globally, something like 60% of all spend is on EC2. If you add four more services, you get to the 85% mark, and then there's a long tail of other things. So you see people overspend by not purchasing reserved instances because they're convinced they're going to turn that cluster off next week and then months and months and months go by and that never gets turned off. In fact, it expands. You also see effectively misunderstandings. The difference, if you're new to AWS and you want to spin up a T3 instance or a P3 instance, that's one letter that sounds the same difference, but you can go anywhere from spending half a penny an hour to 40 some odd dollars an hour based upon that single letter. And that winds up being something that is a tremendous shock to people who've never played with this. The counter challenge that you see in these large companies is how do you govern that intelligently? You can act as a gatekeeper that says you're absolutely not going to be allowed to spin things up without a three-week approval process. Well, that's where cloud came from in the first place. When you have a corporate credit card that has a $5,000 spending limit, you can spin up a new cloud account and you're good to go until it's too big and serving production traffic and then it gets noticed and accounted for. If you block people, they're going to start doing that process again or they're going to go work somewhere else. You also don't want to turn a human into the I'm going to nag people about what they've spun up in Amazon all the time. So I'm looking at the bill by user and who spun what up and dear Lord, I don't know who this Jenkins person is but they're spinning up all the resources in production. And that leads to the biggest problem that you see. The person getting the bill in finance and the engineers spinning up the resources that impact that bill are five organizational levels apart in most cases. person in engineering spins up some resources, and at the end of the month, the person in finance sees an enormous Amazon bill and wonders how many books engineering is buying. They don't see them reading all that much. A company like Netflix has a massive AWS budget. Is there a department within Netflix that does cost negotiation and cost analysis? How do you think the dialogue between Netflix and AWS goes? Without speaking to specific companies, I have a number of clients in or around the, that general level of scale. And there's an evolution. In some companies, especially those that are generally either born in the cloud or have adopted a cloud-native approach and that permeates everything, 
you wind up going from the idea that an engineer can do this part-time, perhaps partnered with someone in the finance group, to building out a cloud cost optimization team, to effectively having a dedicated, usually small, team of folks whose entire purpose is to go and optimize things for cloud spend. And those people are not inexpensive, but at certain points of scale, they can save $10 million a day, depending upon what they're focusing on. So the economics begin to make an awful lot of sense. The challenging part for me, and one of the great inefficiencies that I see in cloud, is hiring those people when you're spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year makes sense. If you haven't done that, you're probably doing something wrong. Whereas if you're spending, I don't know, $40,000 a month on your AWS bill, even hiring one person to do that will cost you more than any savings they could possibly arrive at. So there are inflection points as you go from zero to small, medium, large, holy crap, is that a phone number level of AWS bills? Yeah, I mean, this is one of these areas that people would have never expected to be a business 10 years ago, the cloud cost optimization specialist business. I've met probably four or five different companies that have built really big businesses off of this. And that's your day job. That's what you do, you know, as, as your core business, you help people fix their AWS bills. So what does that look like? What are the methods for cost controls that you have found to be most effective? Great question. I'm not going to talk smack about any of the vendors in this space. There are over a dozen at this point now, but they all tend to tie back to the same model. They come into an environment, they drop a bunch of analytics onto a AWS account. They charge a percentage of your AWS bill every month, which incidentally finance hates. And then they wind up saying, here, we're pointing out cost savings opportunities for you to go ahead and implement. And in practice, almost no one does. And I start to see this entire space as something that doesn't respond nearly as well to a platform as a service offering. Yes, you need analytic visibility into it, but most of what I do takes a much more advisory tone. It's not about tooling. It's about getting the person in finance and in engineering to sit down and talk to one another. It's about building good governance processes. I don't sit there and write custom code for my clients. I have conversations and that distill down to do these five things and you'll knock 22 percent off of your bill on average as an initial assessment. Then we'll get into deeper discussions around strategy, around how you want to govern this environment, how you want to start handling reporting of this, and how you can start shifting how the business views this if it makes sense. Past a certain point, cost savings no longer matters to a company. You're not going to optimize to your next business milestone. You're just going to be a responsible steward of your money or improve the picture of your unit economics. It's one of those areas where at some point your innovation is much better spent elsewhere. The challenge, of course, is that this is a problem every company has, and they all tend to solve it themselves internally like it's a bespoke unicorn. This is the business equivalent of, we're going to build our own version of container orchestration. No, use Kubernetes. The trouble is, is today there's no Kubernetes for this problem. Hmm. Let's talk about legacy enterprises. There are large legacy enterprises that have been increasingly eager to adopt the cloud whether it's banks or insurance companies or agriculture companies, there was a point in time where they were either resistant or were just shrugging their shoulders and say, wait, well, we've already got our, our own data centers. You know, I'm not sure we, we need that kind of thing. But now they realize that there is value. What is their path to adoption? 
Rocky is probably the best answer I've got for you in a nutshell. It requires a fundamental rethinking of your engagement with technology. It requires an understanding of aligning these things strategically. It requires accepting you're probably not going to save any money for the first three years that you do it. And it requires an awareness on the company's part of things such as, well, you're a 200-year-old company and you're used to spending CapEx on your expenses. If you start shifting to cloud, almost all of that could theoretically wind up being reflected as OpEx. There are ways around that. That'll affect earnings per share. That'll affect the visibility of your how the market views your business. And it could theoretically lead to problems for you. Make sure you're aware of what's happening before you get there. There's regulatory risk of people doing a click-through agreement before signing an enterprise agreement directly with a cloud vendor. There are a bunch of nuances that apply to large established companies. I live in San Francisco. It's somewhat natural based upon the environment I'm in to think of companies as this thing someone started in their garage three years ago and eh, it will be sloppy now and fix it later. But with a lot of companies migrating to the cloud, the quote-unquote legacy businesses, there's a lot more at stake. There's a lot more risk, and they have to be move more deliberately. This is not, incidentally, in any way intended to be a condemnation of those companies. It's just different. And making sure that they address this from a perspective, not just economically, but from a business point of view, and have very clear outcomes and ways of measuring that as they go through that process, is critical. People like to make fun of the lift and shift idea of you just take exactly what you have and you put it in the cloud and then phase two is migrate that to take advantage of cloud primitives. The problem is, is the other approach of re-architect everything as you go. Okay, now it's in the cloud. It doesn't work the same way. You've introduced a bunch of regressions and no one has any idea why. Is it your code? Is it the changes to the code? Is it the environment? I mean, there's, there's no silver bullet here. And the answer to almost everything in this space, as there are with any complex problem, is it depends. Amazon has products that cater specifically to these kinds of companies that are, they've been around for 50 years or 100 years. One example is the virtual tape library or the tape gateway, which allows people to move their tape-based backups to the cloud. I thought this was an amusing example that I found in your newsletter at one point. What are some other ways that AWS services are tailored to legacy enterprises? Great question. I put in a feature request back in May of this year, 2018, and they announced it two weeks ago that they now supported it. Namely, what I wanted was the ability to upload a file to S3 via SFTP. And when I tweeted that at them, I, of course, wound up with a whole bunch of people yelling at me, FTP is of the past, just use the S3 API. Great. I appreciate where you're coming from on this. The problem is, is that large banks, the de facto communication pattern that they have between them is generally FTP or SFTP of GPG encrypted files for transaction logs. And in three different jobs now, when I worked in finance, I had to build an instance that waited for FTP files to show up, validate once that was done that it was not still uploading, package the entire thing, and put it into S3. Because you're never going to be able to teach a large bank how to use S3. If you start trying to talk to a banking partner about how S3 works, congratulations, you've opened Pandora's box of compliance and legal requirements because now they have a lot more questions that you can't back out of. It's much healthier for those environments to meet people where they are. Now, this service costs a couple hundred bucks a month for an endpoint, and people are screaming about that, but it's not for consumers. It's for large 
banking institutions like that, where engineering time to build out and maintain an EC2 instance running this is an order of magnitude more expensive than just enabling this endpoint. Now, I saw that launch, I said it was terrific, and then two hours later, I had a follow-up request, okay, now give it a static IP, because otherwise we're going to wind up in a situation where you have to have companies that only update their firewall rules after six weeks of cab approvals now have to do that constantly, and that becomes awful. There are workarounds for it, but I'd like something a bit more out of the box. So as AWS is accepted philosophically more and more by these legacy enterprises like banks and now they can now the banks can FTP their files to S3 and they can get their tape backups moved onto the cloud the legacy enterprises are going to be more and more willing to adopt things and at reinvent this year AWS announced outposts which allow for custom AWS hardware. I guess it's basically you order a box from AWS with specific services on it and they give it to you on-prem so you can kind of get AWS functionality out of on-prem devices that Amazon sends you. This seems like a pretty big development. Explain what the what the implication of outposts are. Absolutely. But first, I want to clarify something you just said, in that we talk about legacy companies like banks, for example. If you take a look at Capital One and their transformation story of being a bank that has gone from purely on-prem to being entirely cloud-driven, they have radically transformed their entire organization. If you're a on-prem company looking at a digital transformation, you could do a lot worse than to model your transformation after Capital One, and I highly doubt you can do better. They've nailed this. So saying someone is a bank, therefore they're legacy boring and crappy and slow is in many cases not accurate. I don't think that's what you were saying. I just want to make sure that that winds up Yeah, I, being you know, clarified. I need to stop using the term legacy because I mean it in a, you know, a categorically non-judgmental way. It's it's more like a, a lovingly a lovingly phrased agnostic just saying like this has been around for a while company but i need a better word for it i should just say something different but yeah okay so go on <laughs> so the question was around aws outposts where they ship you sealed racks starting next year that contain aws hardware and run aws services on prem i think that this approach is to be very direct brilliant it's a great example of what drives Amazon in the sense of being focused on the needs of their customers, they're meeting customers where they are. And they are effectively extending their APIs and their model of doing business into the on-prem data centers. I've seen some fairly poor takes on this, not just on Twitter, but things like headlines and Business Insider saying this is Amazon's tacit admission that cloud isn't for everyone. <laughs> My counter-argument to that is they launched a downlink station service for satellites in orbit. If people with satellites in orbit is a large enough addressable market for them to focus on, I promise people who are intimidated by public cloud absolutely is. I think that that product also goes a long way towards saying without saying one of the biggest problems you'll see in on-prem environments is that you cheap out on buying hardware, you don't manage it properly, and you're effective systems management approach is awful. By dropping these things sealed on-prem into your environment, we get rid of most of that. Now all you're really responsible for here is power and cooling, and we can't do anything about that. 
until next reInvent, when we'll announce AWS Power and Cooling or something. I have no idea if they do that. That is a complete guess speculation. And the fact that I feel the need to disclaim I have no knowledge of any plans to do such things really should give you a clue as to how far I think Amazon will go towards solving some of these problems. They do have wind farms, right? That's a good question. I know they have some internal, they, they say that they have some some data centers and regions powered mostly or completely by renewable energy. I don't know offhand if they own the wind farms themselves, if they wind up leasing them from someone else, or they just put a turbine in front of Larry Ellison when he starts mouthing off about things that are not true about AWS, and then just generate power from that. It, it really tends to come down to a few different ways that could be implemented. Their corporate structure is fascinating to me, but I try and stay in my lane with respect to AWS more than Amazon.com as a whole. So outposts, you could say, are a form of, well, it's probably wouldn't, they're kind of a form of edge computing. I guess it's it's computing that is done outside of the cloud, but I think that term edge computing more generally refers to IoT devices or some kind of smart security camera that's sitting outside of the cloud. Maybe it's sitting on a Wi-Fi network at a shipping yard. As their CloudFront edge locations, which can now themselves run Lambda as well. Yeah, we're starting to see a bit of an exodus where not just storage, but compute moving out of the regions and into the edge. I'm curious to see down the road if they wind up doing the same thing with state. If you can wind up not having to go all the way back to a region to store and update state, that begins to be something fascinating as well. We see parts of that now with certain implementations of things like AppSync, but these are still early days for a lot of this. You're right. The idea of everything that Amazon offers now lives in Virginia, Oregon, and a burning fire somewhere in other parts of Virginia are great. But we're starting to see that if that rapidly expanding, not just with new regions and availability zones spinning up, but by not and by, by taking these things and deploying them now into customer sites. There's a great story there. Well, tell me more about that. So you, you mentioned AppSync. That's like a mobile computing thing that they have? Or just tell, just tell me more about yes. what AWS is doing on the edge. You're more of a software person than I am, I suspect, by a long stretch. But there's the idea that you can now have a mobile app that if you break the network connection, you can still update things in that app. And once it rejoins the network, it'll automatically wind up syncing any changes that wind up, wind up happening. That sounds like a minor implementation detail, but it starts to wind up pointing to a whole bunch of things. You wind up with reconciliation, you wind up with syncing ability, you wind up with now not having to trust the network. And you're starting to see things that are remote and far flung going away from effectively dumb clients and into something that can that that has more and more intelligence where you are that has the effect of reducing latency it reduces the reliance on the network bottleneck it has the advantage of in some cases all of the processing of your sensitive data winds up happening in your environment not in theirs and for things that are regulatorily sensitive for example stripping out credit card numbers from log data as a quick and easy example that's something that by not ever having that leave your facility or the device this stuff happens on you wind up with a much neater story for not just being able to do the right things from a security perspective for compliance, but as compliance always matters, demonstrating that and being able to prove to auditors that this is how this works. So it's addressing an awful lot of not just capability stories from a technology perspective, but as well as addressing higher level business needs. There is a preponderance of AWS services. And if you go to the dashboard, you will see all these services. And 
newer developers can get intimidated by the amount of options on AWS. And so there has been this rise of the cloud providers that are simpler and have easier onboarding. This was early on, you saw this with Heroku, and then there's things like Firebase, and now Netlify is, is getting quite popular. Does AWS have a strategy for appealing to these kinds of users that want a simpler experience? I want to say yes, but I'm not sure how well it's being implemented. When I first started using AWS, I logged into the console and was overwhelmed by the sheer number of services. I'm I'm never going to learn all of this. What do I focus on first? This is incredibly confusing, and I have no idea how to go about solving my problem. There were 12 services. Now there's over 150, and that problem hasn't gotten better. I'm considered to be something of an expert in AWS, largely because two years ago I said I was, and then it turns into a scenario where I'm very rapidly continuing to find myself incredibly overwhelmed. You take a look at services that meet people where they are. Elastic Beanstalk early on was a decent example of this. A better one now is LightSail, where you wind up getting an instance, it winds up having load balancers, you can add databases to it and disks, but it's fixed fee. There aren't five dimensions you get billed on. It's five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, whatever tier you pick. And at reInvent this year, they also announced a transition process where you can take that and convert it into some of the higher level services like EC2 when you hit that point of evolution. But that is probably one of the best examples of easy onboarding for humans without having to spend six weeks in cloud school first that I could point to. We're also, and this is going to be somewhat controversial, I suspect, we're seeing that with Lambda. When you understand as a developer what your constraints are on the code you're writing and how it has to behave, and you don't have to worry about things like failover, durability, anything of that sort, and all of that is managed for you, there's an entire class of problem that largely goes away, and you just have to worry about writing code. Now, there are still constraints, and how that code winds up manifesting is still the subject of some debate. But that's the future. That's where we're heading to. How does AWS compare to Google Cloud these days? Uh, There are a couple of ways to answer that. I would start by saying that Google Cloud is arguably three to five years ahead of AWS in terms of pure technology. The problem is, is that it is not at all clear to me that Google has ever learned to speak to business. AWS exemplifies meeting customers where they are. Google tends to not understand a few key things. First, when a customer tries to move to Google and it doesn't work very well, Google takes a look at what they're doing and more or less says, okay, the problem here is that your code is written like crap. You should instead write code the way we write it at Google. And it turns out that being incredibly condescending to the people who you're hoping to get money from is not a winning sales strategy. There's also the concern, and Google people do yell at me when I bring this up, but we all remember Google Reader, where a widely beloved service was suddenly turned off. As of the day that we're recording this, which is December 6th, we wound up seeing that they turned off Allo this morning or yesterday. It made the headlines. Google has a history of turning off services that people grow to depend on. And while they do that less in the enterprise space, they all have the word Google in front of them. So people are leery about building their business on the backs of a service that may very well be turned off. With over 150 services that AWS has offered, going back to 2006, they have never turned off a service that had active users. That's something that winds up resonating with serious companies who take their business seriously. When a migration takes three years to execute, you don't want to have to do that again. 
So there's something to be said for being able to speak the language of business. And the more I talk to companies that are not tech darlings in San Francisco, the more I realize the second choice for cloud after AWS is going to be Azure, not GCP. Not until Google fundamentally changes how they approach this. I don't know how they do that because it requires a complete shattering and reformation of the culture in some ways, and that is almost impossible. But until that happens, I don't see them growing outside of a very specific customer profile with a few exceptions. Now, most of the startups are using Google's productivity suite, Gmail and Google Docs, and so I'm on. using it myself. So does this give Google Cloud any advantage or are the cloud productivity tools, do you see them as totally disjoint from the cloud infrastructure? To my understanding, the fact that I pay them five bucks per user per month for this does get lumped into the bucket that contains Google Cloud revenue. So there's that argument to be made. But at this point, it's it's from a collaboration perspective. It's kind of neat. But I have never yet built anything where I'm working on a data store or I'm working with S3 or whatnot, and ooh, now I need to integrate it with my office suite. That's not really how I tend to operate. If you start looking at serious businesses as well, where they have built entire complex applications that tie into spreadsheets, they're doing that in Excel. They're not doing that in Google Sheets. And... To some extent, you might see Office 365 having a story here that ties largely into Azure, but I don't see that level of integration on the G Suite or Google Apps for Domains or whatever it is they're calling it this month. So you you mentioned your your take on Azure. It sounds like your belief is that that is the going to have the second biggest market share, at least in, in the near future, or I think it already does. I guess because of a similar willingness to meet customers where they're at, as I guess as well as their their channel advantage with uh, you know pre-existing Microsoft services. Is there anything else that you see as differentiating with the Azure world? I do the two things. First, and I do not in any way mean this as an insult, Microsoft has over 40 years of experience apologizing for software failures. They speak the language of business fluently, and you need that ability in the cloud because that's what things in the cloud do. They fail. As much as you try to build things that are completely bulletproof, nothing ever is. Everything breaks eventually. And being able to explain that in a realistic way without first read the SRE book about error budgets and then talk to us is an incredibly valuable skill. The second thing that I find that Microsoft is doing that's going to absolutely change the landscape and has changed the landscape is I mentioned a minute or two ago that culture change is almost impossible. Microsoft has done it. They've gone from a company that I despised in the 90s to one that I deeply admire. And I don't know, people say, oh, what's what's the secret to that? And I've asked people and they say half in jest, oh, they fired their loud CEO and then replaced it with someone good. Cool. There's more to it than that. I don't believe that one person can drive this. There has to be a collective cultural reckoning. And I can't believe I'm saying this. In 2018, Microsoft is a bit of a darling of the open source world. That is a statement that angry 20-year-old version of me a couple decades ago would be gassed at and wonder what had happened to me. The world changed. And an awareness of that change is something that has absolutely catapulted Microsoft to one of the most admired companies in the world right now. Another sizable player in this space is DigitalOcean, and DigitalOcean is, full disclosure, a sponsor. I think they're also a sponsor of you. But They are. But I, I will say, I think DigitalOcean is, is a sort of sleeping giant, because 
what I like about them is they they take a the alternative path than to the other cloud providers in the sense that they're super selective about the services that they reveal or the services that they deploy that they make available to the developers and so it makes for it does make for this kind of constrained experience that I think AWS might be trying to do with Lightsail what do you think is the long-term strategy of DigitalOcean I think that whatever their long-term strategy is, it's very clearly working. I occasionally see Azure in my client accounts. I occasionally see GCP in my client accounts. Again, all of my client accounts are have AWS. That that's sort of a bit of a selection bias there. But I see DigitalOcean frequently enough that it rounds to all of my clients. There's always something running there, be it a marketing site, a status page, a blog, or something else, where they wind up spinning something ancillary to the core product. I don't tend to see a lot of, this is the core application that makes us money living in DigitalOcean, but I see an awful lot of other stuff. And the reason that I find when I dig into that almost invariably is that it is extremely approachable. You can get up and running within minutes and a matter of clicks. There's no back and forth of first set up these 12 foundational services like IAM and all the rest in order to get using it. It's click, click, done. And you're up and running and being able to build something. They've been extremely selective in the services they support. They have a block store, they have a managed database, they have a load balancer, and they of course have the VM or EC2 equivalent. They recently announced that they're launching the process of launching a Kubernetes cluster service, which cool, good for them. I don't have a problem that looks like that right now, but I'm curious to see what they do with it. But they're you're right, they're very selective. Their product strategy is not yes. They're not launching a bunch of high-end machine learning services, to the best of my knowledge. They're not out there building incredible data lake architectures on how to wind up doing incredibly complex queries upon unstructured data that live in the exabyte range. That's never been what they've been about. It's more or less a cloud for human beings. A lot of their constituents tend to be business side users, not engineering side. So it's easy for those of us who've spent a decade ensconced in the deep dive technical architecture work to sit here and say, yeah, that's what we're going to wind up. That We're going to just ignore that and instead focus on the bigger, more exciting, flashier things. But they're, you're right. They're a sleeping giant. They're quiet, but they're everywhere. And every time I have dealt with them from a support perspective, from a business perspective, or from a from the perspective of just let's, uh, popping in and seeing what they're up to, it's been a wonderful experience. And again, with, they are a sponsor of some of the things that I do, but they pay me to include their links, not to say nice things about them personally. This is, this is me being genuine. This is not me being paid for this. One subject that we've discussed in recent episodes is the, the idea of open source companies that are competing with AWS. So you have companies like Elastic that competes with Amazon's Elastic Search product, or you have Redis Labs that competes with Amazon's hosted Redis. What does an open source project have to do in order to succeed as a product company that might be competing with Amazon's much cheaper, you know, easier to sell hosted product? I would say give up because an open source project is not a business model. It's a means of development. It's a means of community engagement. It's a way of solving technical challenges. But there's an enormous difference between that and having a viable, functional, healthy business. If you even t- I mean, take a good example, this might very well be Elasticsearch on AWS. 
It's an awesome service. Click, click, and you receive it, and it works super well until you try to do anything even slightly off-book or complex, at which point it turns into a screaming fire. At that point, you're generally reaching out to Elastic to work with them. And that winds up being a, a sort of the narrative of how the rest of this works. I think that if your company is solely built around this open source project that you've built and your value add is either a pretty dashboard for it or a consulting assistance series around that, you don't have much of a business to begin with. And without casting aspersions at them, I think on some level, Docker suffered from this. Their entire company was built around a transformative repackaging and branding around an idea, containers, whose time had largely come. But the best part of what Docker did was given away for free as part of open source. There was no narrative when I was deep into the Docker world of step seven, now I cut Docker a large check. There was no upside outcome from my position in the universe, and maybe I'm wrong on that, but it felt like they wound up articulating different attempts at business models periodically. They weren't really sure what they were going to do next. And now, similar to what we'll see happening to Kubernetes at some point, what container system you use has slipped beneath the waves as well. That's no longer the interesting part of the story. Now it's a question of how you orchestrate them. But last year at reInvent, Dr. Werner Vogels got on stage and had a great slide. In the future, like what does the future look like? The only code you will write is business logic. And I, of course, photoshopped the crap out of that and made him say all kinds of ridiculous things like, what does the future look like? Cats will love Amazon Prime meow. But his point was well taken in that people don't want to think about this at a business level. As you move up the stack with things like Lambda, your code now handles business logic and becomes valuable and important to people making strategic decisions. When you're also paying per invocation in a large microservices environment like Lambda, you can also trace to a high degree of accuracy exactly what is costing you money where. You trace the capital flow throughout your organization, as Simon Wardley puts it. That is transformative once you get more than trivial amounts of money being spent on Lambda. So we're nearing the end of our time. I just want to say you make some really good developer content. And so whether it's your newsletter, you also host the Screaming in the Cloud podcast, and you have a distinctive voice, which I think is something that's that's pretty important for at least a lot the content that I want to consume these days, because most of the content I consume these days is written by somebody who I respect, and I know what the voice is. I know who, who I'm listening to, or I'm listening to a podcast of somebody who's, whose opinion I respect and whose personality is something I can, I can tolerate, or I look forward to tolerating. What's been your experience producing content that developers want to consume? It's sort of a byproduct of the confluence of two happy accidents. The first is that sarcasm is my first language. It's how I grew up. We spoke it at home. And I wind up seeing the world through a snarky, sarcastic lens. So being able to speak with that voice is refreshing because not many people do it. And that's and the reason for that is tied to the second, which is because I work on AWS bills, the opportunity for conflicts of interest to arise is massive. I have no partnerships. I am not an AWS partner. I have no partnerships with any vendors in this space. And I have no, I'm not one of those consultants who has a single large client that drives most of my business. I have no one company that's more than 20% of revenue by design. So as a direct result, I am not beholden to anyone else. I'm not one awkward meeting with HR away from not having a job anymore. 
my personality and my voice were tremendous liabilities to me personally when I was an employee. Now that I'm independent and really don't have a corporate overseer, I've become free in a way that I never was before. And I'm taking advantage of that to say what I think. I don't always get it right, but I do occasionally tend to hit the nail on the head. It's one of those areas where that voice is hard to find, but I wouldn't give it up now for anything. Corey Quinn, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Wow. 